0: So I asked myself a question, which was, what could I have done to make a lasting difference? And actually, the answer was quite obvious. It was giving him the skills, training to support himself. Why could we not just crowdfund training for homeless people?
1: La, la, la. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EdTech podcast. And this series episode of the VocTech podcast, Learning Continued, which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. My name is Sophie Bailey and you are very welcome. A big shout out to UFI Charitable Trust and UFI Ventures for supporting this new series and vocational skills development in the UK. You can follow online at hashtag voctech and at podcast edtech on Twitter. This week, we've got a bumper episode with two audio morsels for you to mull over. First up is Alex Stephanie, the CEO of Beam, who is talking about crowdfunding for social good and the importance of grit alongside training, education and support networks. Beam is the world's first crowdfunding platform that helps people from disadvantaged backgrounds to train up and get into rewarding work. Following my interview with Alex, we run the first of our upcoming features on further education. And this week, Ian Hurd is in conversation with the Head of School for Creative Industries, at colleague A. Kimoyd, and visiting lecturer at the University of South Wales, Rory Meredith. Ian and Rory talk about VR for teacher observation, the skills priority programme in Wales, and what it's like to attend the Singularity University Leadership Programme on Exponential Technologies. You'll also hear about why setting up a crazy department to incubate creative ideas might be one of the best ways to future-proof education. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you'd like to be included in the next episode in our listener feature, just say hello, who you are, and what you do in our 90-second voicemail platform at speakpipe.com forward slash the Podcast. Okay, here we go. Excited to be here with Alex Stephanie, who is the CEO of BEAM. And I'm not sure about where you are, Alex, but it's a glorious sunny day down here in the West Country.
0: I'm in London and it's a pretty glorious day up here
1: yeah, as well, so... I'm pleased
0: to say. But I'll be very happy to be in the West Country, that sounds <laughs> lovely.
1: I think last time we met, it was up in London as well and it was it was also a lovely day then, so we're doing well.
0: You're bringing the weather with you, so <laughs> yeah, happy to be at any time.
1: Exactly. So for those who don't know Beam or Alex personally, just a little intro. So it says on your LinkedIn page, I love to run and grow businesses by attracting and nurturing the most talented people and obsessing over product. In my last role as CEO of Just Park, I grew revenue over tenfold in three years, built a top class team from two to over 40, raised funding from index ventures and closed the largest equity crowdfunding for a startup in history. I'm now working with a stellar team at Beam to solve the big and complex problem of homelessness. Beam is the world's first crowdfunding platform that helps people from disadvantaged backgrounds to train up and get into rewarding work. Our initial focus is supporting homeless adults in hostels and other temporary accommodation. It says here, I'm also the author of a business book on the sharing economy, The Business of Sharing. And you cut your professional teeth as a corporate lawyer at Clifford Chance. Got a first from Oxford University in English, and the fundamentals of financial analysis via a CFA qualification. And finally, you say that many people have kindly helped you over the years. So you're you're involved as a mentor with uh, entrepreneurs through Techstars. And yeah, so right. you're on Twitter at Alex Stephanie. So welcome, Alex.
0: Thank you. It's very embarrassing hearing <laughs> your LinkedIn profile read back to you but thank you for embarrassing me. It's
1: kind of an exquisite type of awkwardness that I like to inflict on my guests.
0: Well (laughs) I appreciated it thank you.
1: So we start at the beginning where are you from Alex and where is the place you call home now?
0: So I'm from London I've lived almost all my life in London live now in North London but I've I've lived in a few different places so I lived in China after I left school and that I guess was the first time that I saw kind of real extreme poverty so that was almost 20 years ago before this sort of huge period of growth and that yeah. was quite an eye-opening experience next place I lived after that was was Paris I wanted to go learn French and this law firm gave me kind of a bit of a sabbatical to go and learn French which was very nice and then I came back to London and I had this experience of working with these sorts of like you know they push clients being investment banks and private equity funds but another thing I got to do when I was working in this law firm was to volunteer for a legal charity which was totally the other end of the spectrum because I was giving free legal advice to anyone in London that you know was interested and at this legal charity there were queues around the corner Mm. every every legal clinic and some of the people that we were seeing were in the most awful of life situations and that was a very formative experience for me as well I as living at the time in Acton in West London and I was seeing it all, all the, the you know the extreme poverty and social deprivation and disadvantage that exists in London which you know I always knew existed but you're pretty insulated from when you are growing up you know you're, you're, you're born in the country you're living in a middle you know grew up in a middle-class sort of suburban type environment these were often people who you know uh, didn't even have the right to claim benefits were hugely in debt had health problems had family who had been you know imprisoned or murdered in other countries and it was just a whole nother order of
1: hmm. of,
0: of challenge so yeah, yeah that's a little little potted history on the on the places where lived.
1: That's in- interesting. I remember going travelling. I left left school, and I remember a sort of similar situation. I was on a uh, back of a sort of truck, and there was a kid opposite me who must have been about eight or something. Mm. And I and, and this is in Laos, and I I noticed that his head had kind of these bumps all over it, and obviously he was very unwell. And yeah, it's just kind of this realization as a young person that. For him, he lived, you know, probably miles and miles and miles away from a local hospital, let alone if you can access that. And it it is a real awakening of, you know, the types of problems that you've witnessed today are perhaps on a different end of the the scale slightly. And, And it's kind of interesting that you mentioned, you know, the people coming through that legal clinic because... I suppose that's part of it. It's sort of this catch-22 situation whereby, you know, if you haven't got this one form, then it prevents you from um, accessing other opportunities. And you you probably saw every different version of that.
0: I guess I began to understand that the two things that I've been lucky with were were things that were very protective. And I think of them as scaffolding. And those two Mm -hmm. things are training and education and all of the economic opportunity that that's created for me. And the second thing is support networks in their various forms, whether that is family, friends, colleagues, all all things that are immensely beneficial to you in all kinds of different ways from professional prospects to just sort of general mental health and, and well-being. And probably come to this later, but for me, this very interesting model of crowdfunding to support disadvantaged people to get into jobs is that it actually provides both of those benefits at once. So you are crowdfunding for the training, which creates that economic opportunity, but you also give people support networks, and those support networks come from the people who fund the campaigns. And today, more than uh, well, more than two hundred people on average fund each person's campaign, and they form this amazing new support mm. network for that individual. They send positive messages. They boost the confidence. They can also surface employment opportunities. And you know, that's, I think, fundamentally why we think this, this model is so interesting. We think of it as kind of building scaffolding for people that you know, is protective and will allow them to become more resilient and more independent.
1: I mean, I was looking at the uh, the comments around people on the Beam platform and we will come come to it in a minute. I want to delve into sort of your prior work um, just a bit before we do, but I can totally see that, you know, you can see the encouragement and the, you know, starting to follow someone's personal story, you know, in the way that we do when we're invested in the, you know, the, the kind of journeys that our friends and family are taking as well. But yeah, just before we, we dive into that, so... I love Just Park, just on the record. So I went up to London recently for an event and got completely stung in overnight parking. Usual situation, your push for time, just kind of wang your car somewhere and the outcome isn't usually very good. So yeah, great, great work on that. And I suppose part of your role during your time at Just Park was, you know, closing that record breaking £3.7 million crowdfunding round. So Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? So going through that process and also, you know, how you think the sharing economy fits into the world of employment, vocational skills, the workplace. So how does the sharing economy fit into, you know, what we might be able to achieve in education and training?
0: So the crowdfunding was incredibly nerve-wracking and scary and exciting so we initially set out to raise a million pounds and were very conscious that if we didn't raise that it would be a very public failure mm-hmm. to what was a reasonably well-known business and it was my first kind of CEO role and it would have been pretty professionally embarrassing as well as bad for the company so you know that was going through my mind and what made that a much bigger fear was the fact that relatively shortly before we did the fundraise, we were told that it we were not able to promote or it would be risky to promote the fundraise as um, EIS or SEIS, so, you, so investors wouldn't get those huge tax benefits from mm-hmm. investing. And subsequent to the raise, we found out that actually it was eligible, but mm-hmm. we thought the prudent thing beforehand was to not tell investors that they would be getting EIS. And at that time it was, and I think it probably still is, like pretty unheard of to raise um, equity crowdfunding without SEIS or EIS. And I went and found the one person who had done fundraising on crowdfunding, both with and without EIS. And I said, well, did you notice a difference? And he said to me, well, without EIS, it was 10 times as hard and we raised a 10th as much. So <laughs> that was the the cause for real alarm there. But, you know, in the end, it was fine. And we ended up yeah going almost four times over our original target. And the campaign had loads of momentum. And I think it really spoke to people. You know, everyone understands from their daily lives that parking is a really broken thing. And I think the business just then and now really continues to resonate with, with people who know that there's a kind of a big problem to be solved. And the technology can really make a difference. And then your, your second question, Sophie, around um, kind of sh- sharing economy and, and being, well, what I see the similarity is, is these kinds of collaborative platforms are often connecting people. So, you know, Airbnb is connecting someone with a home with someone that wants to rent the home. Get around is connecting someone wanting to rent out a car with somebody who wants to rent that car. And for both people, there's, there's benefits and the tech platform does well when it can safely connect those two parties and solve both of their problems well what beam is doing is fundamentally connecting two groups of people as well it's connecting people who really need help um, with people who really want to help and it's that kind of one-to-one connection that i think makes beam so special when people donate they get to follow the stories of the people that they are supporting and they get email updates when the individual is doing their training is starting work. And they can engage in those updates like they could with any social media post. They can like and they can comment and they can really see the progression that an individual is making. So, you know, I think that's where I see the sort of the similarity. It's, it's kind of connecting two groups that, to, to make the experience, you know, richer, more efficient and kind of just more more human.
1: And you mentioned the work previously with the pro bono legal work. How long has the idea for Beam sort of been there and been developing and sort of how did that transition into sort of forming Beam as a formal charity and foundation?
0: So it took about a year between coming up with the idea and the platform launching. And over that period, we spent a lot of time kind of developing the models with some great charities um, and with um, individual people experiencing homelessness as well and obviously building technology and the kind of platform itself. Um, but the original idea stems from uh, a meeting that I had with a homeless man at my liquid tube station. And this was a guy that I'd walked past loads and loads of times. Um, but one time, fortunately, I plucked up the courage to speak to him and uh we got to know each other the first conversation i remember he told me that he would sit there because there was cctv and that made it less likely that he would be attacked and we got to know each other um over the course of a few months um nice guy mid-40s irish man kind of big beard at one point he disappeared for about eight weeks and um when i when i saw him again he looked completely different his his beard had gone and he looked like maybe 10 or 15 years older and i went up to him and i said you know What's happened? Where have you been? And he said, oh, "Had a heart attack. I've been in hospital. And I walked home that evening to my nice flat. And I just thought, well, nothing I've done has really made a material difference to this person's life. Um, he, you know, he's in a worse position now than, than he was um, when I first met him." So I asked myself a question, which was, what could I have done to make a lasting difference? And actually, the answer was quite obvious. It was giving him the skills, the training to support himself. And that was going to cost more than a coffee. But, you know, what if we all chipped in? Why could we not just crowdfund training for homeless people that they could use to sustainably support themselves? And that was really the genesis of the idea. And we went around and I went around and spoke to charities and some of them were interested. And we took it from there.
1: That's amazing. And... I mean, for, from the training point of view, who do you connect with to provide that training? And how do you go about sort of aggregating that service as well?
0: So all of the training is provided by third party training providers. And we pick the best one for the job. So we audit them before using any of the training providers. And then the homeless people who are getting trained there, they also review the training providers so that we get any feedback. And, you know, it's not something that we ever wanted to do ourselves because mm-hmm. there's already a great ecosystem of people providing high quality professional training. So, you know, it's all about tapping into that.
1: And I think I saw on your website that, you know, you're you're looking for talent all the time in terms of people joining Beam, um, people with machine learning skills, perhaps, and that kind of thing. Um, what role does technology play currently and how do you sort of see the service evolving
0: So, yeah, there's two types of people that we're generally sort of looking to hire. So, some of them are sort of people with startup experience and other of them are people who uh, have some experience working with these kinds of groups or just really passionate about making a difference and, and joining a social enterprise. So... You know, there are people doing technical roles, but actually the bigger need right now is for people who are just really passionate about what we're doing, who are interested in operational roles or business development roles or partnerships roles. So, yeah, check out the jobs page. If anyone is listening who is excited by what we're doing, just drop us an email on careers at beam.org.
1: I was reading the learner journeys and they're pretty amazing. And you almost feel nervous reading the ones where, you know, their fundraising is yet to complete. So sort of how long does the duration of fundraising tend to take? And, you know, I suppose what happens if people don't meet their target? Is there any way that we can kind of help sort of boost that?
0: Sure. So there is a page on our website, which is beam.org forward slash transparency which has more than 50 live data points on all kinds of different things. So the number of people training and work, um, the different types of donations, how much money has been donated, all all these sorts of things. One of the things, one of the data points that it gives is the average length of a campaign in terms of how long it takes to fund. I, I think I'm correct in saying last time I looked, it's, it was about 34 days. So that's kind of how how long the average campaign takes to fund. Now, we are a very unusual type of crowdfunding platform. On the average crowdfunding platform, you have lots of campaigns that fail to fund. And they kind of like that because it's kind of a bit Darwinian and they want only the good things to fund is the sort of reality. They don't care if your idea is not good enough to fund. Like that's just the people, you know, have declined it sort of thing. Um, Whereas we obviously care and we don't want anyone to not fund. So we have a totally different approach. We bring people onto the platform in a really gradual fashion. And what that means is that we wait until the current campaigns are funded before bringing on new people. So people get funded but the more money that we can get through the platform the more people we can get onto the platform mm-hmm. and at the moment mm-hmm. the service is so popular and actually a lot of the people who are using it are referring other people to beam as well mm-hmm. that you know i'd encourage anyone listening to this to go to beam.org and they you know, set up a monthly donation for one or two pounds a month or something you know as much as you feel you can spare be an incredibly enriching experience for you and then the more of pe- the, you know, the more people we have who are supporting the campaigns. The more people we can move through the model, the shorter the waiting list. The more people we can help. So you know, that's our you know one of our biggest challenges at the moment is just continuing to grow the people that we can help. Where the blocker is 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 the donations.
1: And in terms of the kind of training that people have chosen so far, I sort of noticed, you know construction worker or hairdresser or. PA. I just wondered, you know, if training providers are listening in and they have courses that they think would provide additional opportunities, would you like to hear from them? Because I was just sort of thinking of, you know, with the white hat model and apprenticeships and sort of going down the digital training path as well, whether there'll be a kind of diversity of how, like, what and how people are learning as well.
0: So, yeah, interested in speaking to training providers, but most interested in speaking to employers.
2: Mm -hmm. So,
0: All of the career paths are shown on each campaign. You can see these are people becoming accountants or crane riggers or lorry drivers or, you know, all kinds of awesome things that we need as a society. And if your company is hiring these sorts of people, definitely get in touch. The people coming through the model, they're highly trained. They're they're getting the best training that, that, that they can have. It's accredited training. They are leaving the B model, you know, in confident, motivated, you know, really really keen to get on and start earning money and anyone who can offer some opportunities to these individuals i think will be you know doing a great service to the individuals to their society but i think also for their companies as well because these are people who have you know remarkable stories to tell who've overcome a lot with their lives and i think who will add a lot to the diversity and and strength of, of, of any workforce
1: what are you reading at the moment and why
0: i'm reading a book called grit which is about how Grit is the kind of key determinant in success of people professionally. I think I've got quite a lot of grit already, but it's interesting reading reading a book on it in any case. So that's the thing I'm reading right now.
1: And that's interesting you mentioned grit. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in How to Fail podcast at the moment, which I think is fantastic. Have there been any experiences which have developed that grit, especially, do you think, in your own life? I think...
0: There have been a few periods of my life when I've been out of work and I've felt how destabilizing it is mm. and how demoralizing it is and practically how difficult it can be to not have the structure in your life and the salary coming in and all of these things. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm struggling to get the job that I want and I'm not in work despite all of the incredible advantages I have. And... You know, what must things be like for someone that, you know, maybe they're in their in their 60s and they mm. haven't been in work in a long time and they, you know, don't have a university degree and, you know, all of the many things that, you know, I'm lucky enough to have. And so I think being out of work probably kind of developed some grittiness in me mm. because I, I felt the... You know the challenges of of having to kind of prove yourself, and the the period I was out of work was during the credit crunch, when you know it was was really you know good opportunities were really thin on the ground, frankly, mm-hmm. and it was a, a very tough market in, in which to find a good job. Um, I think these sort of downturns probably develop grit for people who have left university in in the last few years. All they've really known is. If it, certainly, if they're you know come out of a decent university and are trying to get a job in London, it's like a very buoyant jobs market, mm. especially with especially within the tech sector, and it is actually quite character-forming to you know to have to fight a little bit more for the, some great opportunities that companies are providing to people, um, you know, and that's very much been the experience of of people in some, especially southern European economies that have you know still still are in pretty bad shape up from the credit crunch the the young people there really probably do have a level of grittiness yeah. that you, you see less commonly i would say as a, as a generalize it as a crude generalization but it um, makes it, the UK.
1: it makes me chuckle because my friend and i were having a chat about and we're sort of on the tail end of millennials anyway so we're allowed to say this but like it's that's kind of like the opposite perhaps of when um you know some people that would fall under the millennial uh, tag which is kind of like you know straight in the door you know already won a uh, a kind of pay rise and haven't perhaps <laughs> gone through that grittiness of having to fight so you know perhaps that mm. is a symptom of a kind of buoyant jobs market as well but um cool okay so if people want to to find out more they can go to the beam website and what's kind of next for beam what's the the next sort of six months look like
0: so we want to grow the team a lot so, uh, as I mentioned, looking for kind of frontline people to work with the B members and support them through the training and to work. I would frankly love to be doing this job myself because it is an incredibly uplifting, inspiring thing to be able to follow each of these individuals on their journeys. So, we need to hire people to do that role and business development people. We need to uh, uh, fundraise, obviously. We need to do more corporate partnerships. We have some incredibly exciting partnerships with some kind of household name companies that will be coming soon mm. we're also launching a new and improved version of the website so those are some of the the things that we have to look forward to we're also um building out a new feature which is called fundraisers which allows people to raise money for beam by doing, you know, a cake sale or a marathon or, or any kind of thing. It's, you know, they start a kind of Just Giving style campaign on Beam. And then the really nice thing about this is that as people donate, the actual people who are receiving those funds begin to appear on the fundraising page. And you can see how they progress from within this fundraising campaign. So, you know, that's a really cool thing we're really excited about because a lot of people are excited about Beam. And I think it's a really nice feature that will empower them to, to go and you know help us to help more people
1: fantastic and will you be going beyond London at some point do you, do you hope
0: absolutely I mean hopefully beyond the UK at some point but it's a question of doing it at the right time yeah. and in a way that you know resource of supplements that the work we're doing in in London rather than distracts us, us from it
1: fantastic well Alex thank you so much for today and uh, good luck with everything
0: thank you so much Safi. it's been lovely speaking
2: I think we're on. Excellent. I'm here with uh, Rory Meredith at Colleague Ecomoid, just outside of Cardiff. Colleague Ecomoid is a
3: fairly new college. Well, we merged in 2012 with another further education college, Yeah, So we, we used to be Colleague Morgano, and that en- encompassed a few campuses. And then we merged with another large college, co- uh, a sort of College, and it became Colleague yeah, of back in 2012.
2: So it's a fairly new college, and obviously you've had quite a lot of investment, because we spoke a little bit yesterday about, you know, your use of VR to improve practices in teaching and learning. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit for me, it sounded really interesting.
3: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Obviously, with the development of teaching and learning practice, really, amongst us members of staff, when I sort of moved into a management position two years ago, I was sort of trying to bring with me the the tools that I had used as a lecturer and trying to see or adapt them to how could they possibly be used to improve teaching practice amongst my colleagues and, and people that I work with in the department. The thinking really behind that was the college is investigating a number of different methods of trying to improve teaching and learning in general. And this was something that I proposed I would like, this was a project I'd like to undertake. To use 360 cameras that we already had purchased, we were using the Kanda KuCam cameras, which we bought off Kickstarter. The assistant principal for teaching and learning here gave me the go ahead to run with that project for a year. So we started it last September and literally we we just poured our efforts into what other equipment do we need. We invested in some HTC Vive Pro goggles and, and literally we've spent the last year. So it it is very much in a early experimental development phase we've ended the first year of doing it we've encountered a number of technical problems and issues that we had to overcome the actual 360 capture inside the classroom the purpose really that we were going for was to try and allow a member of staff to do a learning observation on themselves where they would become a learner in the classroom and then be able to view their own teaching back and assess it themselves so in other words do a learning observation on themselves in order that they could self-reflect and then hopefully improve, you know, think of strategies to develop their own teaching practice. It would allow them to form their own opinions based on those observations. The great thing about, you know, capturing it in a 360 manner rather than a regular sticking an iPad in a classroom or wherever is that immersive experience and trying to really engage them in the space, allow them to look all the way around the room at every learner in the space. And as I would, if I was doing a learning observation on them, and I'm generally looking at the learners mostly when I'm doing a learning observation on a member of staff. So I thought it'd be really great for those to have, that experience personally as a manager i've learned more about teaching viewing some of my colleagues than i ever did when i was teaching on my own in my own little room without any interaction with anybody else you know you're sort of in charge of your own space and you you deliver teaching in the way you think is best But when you go on it and view other people, suddenly they do things totally differently to you. And and sometimes you can think, wow, I I never really ever thought of approaching a lesson in that way. It's a really amazing technology. And I think we're on the cusp of it, really. You know, it's been, I guess, quite a deceptive technology for a while. But as it becomes more maybe with 5G and, you know, it'll become easy to sort of transfer these things onto mobile devices. And we just, I I don't know where it's going to go, but I just want to be a part of that. So you've done some
2: experimentation. Have you been able to measure the impact of that? How were you thinking of measuring the impact? The place we're
3: at right now is we've captured 15 videos. The capture process is relatively straightforward. You know, the the, the post-production process is a little bit more arduous than I first thought. Generally, though, those are processes that five minutes and let it run, you know, so they're, they're not really that, they sound like a burden, but it's something that I'm quite happy to just take that on, on myself and, and process it, let it run, leave the computer on overnight or whatever, come back the next day, upload it to YouTube. We then hit a technical issue whereby Edyrom, unbeknownst to me, that the HTC Vive Pro needs the Steam client to work. Uh, Our firewall, basically, at the college was blocking access to Steam, and we had to work with the IT department, which which delayed the reflective process. Really, for members of staff to actually view this video, these videos, we're only now in a process where the firewall is cleared as of yesterday. Um, and now we can actually get to the to the to the thing of members of staff viewing the, the videos. But I've got this, I've got the library video, so I've done kind of the hard work. Now it's for the st- it's for the members of staff now to to go to go in and view. So we're at that stage now. So it's kind of going to roll into next academic year, the self reflective part of it. But I, I'm happy with where we're at because that hurdle has now been, you know, jumped over or crossed, so to speak.
2: Yeah, and I guess it's all part of just the experimentation stage, isn't it? And finding ways for these these things to work. But it definitely sounds like there's something that could be really interesting. There's lots of, you know, sort of rich data. And the way that you can immerse yourself in that situation, it gives an, a, a more fine-grained and a more immersive approach to to peer feedback, where it becomes more than just words, which is great. So that sounds amazing, actually. I think a lot of people are going to be really interested in hearing that. Do you have anything,
3: anything coming up on the horizon? Any new developments, any Um, more crazy ideas? Well, those actually, um, I'm very lucky in that, yeah, when you, again, parts of our crazy ideas, we always try to tap into money that floats around in the pots from, whether it be from Europe or ESF funding. So we've been lucky in our department whereby we've really proactively gone after some of these pots of money for, for training and CPD. Um, It's actually called the the Skills Priority Programs here in Wales. And lots of colleges can tap into these funds, but we've been really proactive in our school, in the creative school here. Um, Part of that enabled me to go to Silicon Valley to do the Singularity University Executive Programme at at an incredible cost, which I would never have had that opportunity to go there. I mean, I'm incredibly interested in exponential technologies. And the the Executive Programme itself is for senior lead. I mean, I felt completely... You know, probably the lowest paid person there. I was sitting with the governor of the Danish National Bank, um, director of Netflix for South America, directors of Microsoft and Google, and basically a hundred uh, senior executives from every business sphere where they basically go on this executive program, which is a six day program. All these, basically the best 24 TEDx style talks you've ever seen with people the size, with brains the size of planets come in and actually discuss how exponential technologies are affecting every industry. So everybody's kind of got a vested interest in that. Coming from the music industry, I've obviously completely aware of the disruption that went on in the music industry, it's kind of how I lost my first career. So I've always been interested in digital disruption and how that affects industries. So I managed to secure the funding to go, spent all this time there. Again, there were people talking about the future of learning, future of mobility, future of banking, blockchain, microbiome, things I'd never even heard about. One of the things that came out of that particular thing was I came back to the college, did a presentation to the principal and to the college management team here and It's that thing about being able to think in a creative and crazy way. And is there a crazy department where you work? So I came back really saying that I want to start a crazy department where we can have time to think and come up with innovative ideas to solve problems that we're experiencing, you know. And so that's that's something that I'm looking forward as a project and moving forward. Is to is to assemble a, a a crazy team inside the college and try and come up with ways. That in sounds the, great. I'd t- is, like to be in that is, <laughs> crazy team. It not all, we're all if, you're, if you're a creative person, you're you're yeah. halfway crazy anyway. Well, <laughs> so. that's
2: yeah, probably true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that sounds really interesting. So, um, what what was the terminology you used for uh, for that? Um, like in digital
3: disruption. So you're talking about how, how
2: that's what the what, event was about.
3: Well, it, it kind of is. In a way, you know, coming from the music industry, obviously when music became digitized, an entire industry really didn't know what was going on. So they're talking about trying to give senior leaders in organizations to become more exponential in the way they think rather than linear and making forecasts based on what's happened in the past because generally your forecasts fall short. But of course, you know, that's happened to media industry, telecoms industry, the banking industries, education in particular. And I worry about that. Being in education now, I worry about how the digitization of knowledge knowledge and how those things are going to affect educational institutions really and, and they could they, that entire model could fall apart What was the name of the, of the event? It was the so Singularity University The Singularity University, university. university yeah. yeah it's based in Silicon Valley in the NASA Research Centre um, it's run by Peter Diam- Diamantis and um, Ray Kurzweil they're the founders in 2008 they founded this they formed this university really to firstly to sort of provide leaders of organisations and, and companies and corporations trying to future proof their own industries the program's fantastic I, I can't it's the best training I've ever had in my life and it's just one of those experiences where, you know, you come back and if you don't try and embrace these technologies or try and find a way that you can use them to the benefit of your team or to the benefit of yourself, then to me, that is a waste of time. It is trying to, it's trying to leverage these things and to, to put them to a positive use. To make your life easier and to make the learning experience better and tech ultimately for good. it is tech for good let's tech for good
2: is, yeah. is the phrase yes absolutely. <laughs> we should end on
3: tech for good <laughs> let's let's
2: finish there on tech for good that's, yeah. a, that's the best way to finish any technology conversation I think well thank you very much for taking the time I know obviously time is a massive resource issue in education these days so I very much appreciate this time that you've made for me and hopefully your ideas will save people even more time and drive up standards in amazing ways that you can hopefully share with us again sometime
3: who knows we can only Trey thank you very much Ian thank
2: you so much
1: that's all for this week's episode thanks so much for listening in and I do hope you enjoyed and found some gems of inspiration to take away with you Don't forget that for events you might be interested in around the world, you can go to theedtechpodcast.com forward slash events. That's all for now. Thanks for subscribing and listening. Bye-bye.